the one click share, the single click mm-hmm. share, which is a very simple feature. It was deployed across the board by 2012 on most people's phones. And that process of just making it incredibly easy to pass on information from one person to another essentially made our emotions viral, right? Mm. For the first time. In the moment mm. that I'm outraged by something that I'm served, I can pass that on to anyone, anywhere. And that one simple process of just making it that much easier to take a feeling that I have and passing it on to my entire audience that propelled us into this level of virality of our content and our emotions that just did not exist previously in our species. That's Tobias Rose Stockwell, author of The Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. This is a Denison podcast. I'm your host and curator, Jenny Stefanati. In this episode, we're talking about Tobias's book, which touches on what is one of the most important and critical issues of our time, how social media has influenced the information ecosystem in ways that disrupt democracy and society writ large. Tobias's book is a really important contribution to the conversation because he doesn't just look at social media and the features and incentives of the technology companies, but he looks at media broadly. He actually takes us back through the history of media from the advent of the printing press to radio to television and shows how with each new technology that changed the way that information propagated, there were disruptions to society and subsequent corrections. And he sees this moment with social media as analogous to these moments of the past. As always, you can find transcript and show notes on our website, www.becomingdenison.com. There you can sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter where we send the latest content along with announcements from our partners. This is a really important conversation. I really appreciate how broad we go. It's the insights from that breath that really help us understand the problem in a meaningful way and start to put us in a position to talk about solutions. I hope you enjoy it. So, Tamias... (laughs) One of the reasons that you are so near and dear to my heart is that you were the very first person that I did not know that joined one of these conversations Mm. back in 2020 when the topic was content moderation on social media. (laughs) And it was the first inkling that perhaps people beyond my immediate social network might be interested in these conversations. So I'm so excited to support you in this book. I know it's a culmination of so many years of work. Thanks, Jenny. The outrage machine. Yeah. Great conversation initially. Wonderful intro and just a wonderful way to get connected to your community. Mm Mm-hmm. So what we want to talk about today is I, I want to draw out the key insights from your book. Obviously, the role that social media plays in society is such a, a critical part of the ongoing conversation that we have here. We've touched on it many times, but one of the things that I so deeply appreciate about your book is that it widens the lens beyond just social media and looks at journalism and press and its history, but more critically, just helps us develop a systems view of the role that information plays in society writ large, both in terms of our political institutions and in terms of of culture. And when we can start to draw insights from history about the velocity that information spreads and the ways in which we can verify the veracity of the information, it's just enormously helpful in assessing the current moment and what we might do about it. And so I'm very excited to to draw the the really key insights from the book. So I know it's called The Outrage Machine. And when you talk about The Outrage Machine, you're specifically talking about how social media is kind of geared towards outrage, and we'll get to that. But actually, in the latter half of the book, you talked about a different type of machine, which was government, and the role that outrage plays in the functioning in government. And I think that that framing is actually really valuable to hold as we go through the entire conversation. So I want to start there. Great. Yeah. The metaphor of a machine is a useful metaphor when talking about big system level issues. In the latter part of the book, I open up with this this kind of wider aperture of thinking about government in general as being sort of like a machine that operates much like an outrage machine. And so far as outrages are not bad, 
for society. Outrages are actually quite good for society if they are quantifying the right problems that we're facing, right? So if we see something that's broken in the world, then we want to be able to effectively address it. It's a big coordination problem collectively for us. If we see a problem, we want to fix it. And the democratic process is built much like a, a machine that takes outrages and then through a very specific set of steps, turns them into policy, which then potentially solves those problems. Thomas Jefferson famously thought that we didn't actually need government as long as you had newspapers. Like you could just get newspapers to write about what was wrong, and then citizens could get together and collectively solve these problems on their own. They could form a small council and just address the issues and knock them out. It turns out that that's not quite as easy as it sounds, but and there's a, a lot of failure points for traditional media and the way that it operates, which the book goes into pretty in depth. But yeah, overall, if you kind of blur your eyes for a second and look at government and the way it operates, is like we have democracies, so we can kind of federate the process of addressing the many issues that we face together. We can vote people in that potentially take care of those issues or don't take care of those issues, right? And then they legislate against them. And if they don't take care of those issues, then we revote and get someone else in to actually fix the problem. So you can really think about society a bit like a big outrage machine that turns outrages into policy to actually solve those issues. So I think that's an important kind of frame for it. A key piece of it is the speed at which those outrages spread and the the validity of those outrages, right? A lot of the time when people are pissed off about an issue, when I'm pissed off about something, I I won't necessarily be the most level-headed about the actual solution. And I might do something rash or draconian. You know, the founders in the early days, in their writing, I believe this was in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton wrote something along the lines of, if every Athenian citizen had been a Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. In that mm-hmm. even with great intentions as individuals, collectively, we make bad decisions a lot of the time. So you need to mm-hmm. have a good system of letting people cool off when they're making decisions about how to kind of address these problems and let them chill <laughs> and let them orient themselves towards solutions with a level head. And so you can kind of see this when we get extremely angry about something collectively, how a series of rash policies can be enacted that don't actually solve the problem at hand, right? And so if that if the outrage moves too fast, then sometimes we actually make worse, we make worse problems as a result. And so yeah, so I I, I, I go through that in the book, I try to think about democracy as sort of like this algorithm that we're running collectively, that kind of resembles a bound and branch algorithm, which is we we have this system for, for approaching a problem, and we, we go through and we we sort through potential solutions until we get to the right one through this process of, of voting, of observing problems, mm. <laughs> voting, and then seeing if those problems are actually solved. So yeah, it's a pretty macroscopic view, but I think it's helpful for thinking about the role of outrage in society. I think we're all yeah. a bit overwhelmed by the quantities of, of problems that we're facing right now. It starts to feel a little bit desperate and dark when we're exposed to so many problems on a regular basis. But I do think it's possible to calibrate our inputs in a way that can make the system a little bit more effective and mm. uh, run, run more smoothly. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I just I wanted us to have that kind of orientation as we start to talk about the history, because I think that it's so interesting that you took us through this, where you basically said, hey, everybody, this is not something that we haven't seen before. The magnitude of it is something we haven't seen before, but there have been many points in history when there was an innovation with respect to information and the way that information propagated. And there were actors who took advantage of that disruption. And then there was a correction. And you talk about that kind of the dark valley that society enters before the correction happens. And some of those examples are are so interesting. So I want to talk about them. The first one that you give is actually about the printing press. Mm, Right. Yeah, we go far back. But I appreciate how far back, right? Because you talked about how did it used to be? Where did we start? We started in small groups and the information was largely held in groups, right? And so, like, let's go back to the printing press and insights from that moment. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So up until that moment when the printing press came along, and there were presses before Gutenberg, there they were just generally hand-crank presses that were just a little bit slower. 
that process of just increasing the net speed at which people could produce information, like the velocity of content being created was enough to really dramatically change the entire structure of Europe. And you could argue that that one particular invention was the most violent invention to hit continental Europe in history up until that point, because it caused 100 years of civil war as a result. So we, I, I try to frame these disruptions in terms of this historical context, specifically like every time we're exposed to a new media technology that is a real sea change in how we process information, there is this period called that I call Dark Valley, where we go through and we are extremely kind of euphoric about in the beginning, we're euphoric yeah. about its, its usage. We're like, this is amazing. And then as there is mass adoption that comes, there are all these harms that are basically hidden from view because it is so because people are so euphoric about its use, mm-hmm. essentially. And and so that that kind of that adoption curve intersects with the decreasing thriving of the species curve. And you end up with this kind of obscured period of net decrease in thriving that comes as a result. So the with the printing press specifically, you can look at it at the time and the Catholic Church was actually really excited about the printing press and they would use the printing press to print these little sp- slips of paper called indulgences and they would sell them to the wider public as these basically like hall passes to heaven. Basically, they would let you sin if you were willing to pay for it. And so it was like a little ticket to to absolve you of, of your sins. And this kind of rotund and cranky priest in, in Germany got upset about this. And he wrote what, if you look at it today, <laughs> is essentially a Twitter thread. I love that you, I love that you it's refer 90, to it as that. <laughs> 95 theses. It's like you, the way that they're character delimited. Each one is an outrage he's pissed off about. Each one is like a point, like I cannot believe the church would do this. They shouldn't be doing it this on this day of the week. This is crazy and blasphemy that they don't allow for this. And they just go to each, each of these individual points of outrage that he has. Martin Luther came along at this very specific moment that intersected with the explosion of availability of the printing press. And that process of just it being available, it both saved his life and it also dramatically changed the kind of entire architecture of the power structures of Europe at the time because it intersected the printing press. And so he was not like a media guy, but the way these print shops that were operating at the time, they were just trying to make money. So they were printing indulgences here and there. And then they found this theses, right? His kind of his Twitter thread. And they started reprinting that. And people found this to be totally crazy and outrageous. And so it basically went viral at that moment in time, much the same way a really outrageous Twitter thread goes viral now. And it showed that in this process of just of just intersecting with a new a new type of viral platform, how a specific set of outrages could expand and change everyone's minds over the course of a period of time. And this democratization of information, it's like we tend to think about democratization of information being really good. It's like no one would have gone back to the previous way before the printing press, but it was deeply violent. It was a deeply violent period as people were accessing information. Suddenly there was these outrages were visible to people that they, they weren't visible before. You know, they could see and hear they're like, oh yeah, maybe that is actually problematic that the church is doing these things. Maybe this is actually not okay that they're just making money to they're they're absolving people of, of sin by printing out a little piece of paper. Maybe that's not all right. So there's this kind of this lighting up of people's moral matrixes in, in a way that didn't exist before that point. And that was hugely, yeah, hugely in, influential to the continent, but also, yeah, very, very, very violent. And I think it's important to remember that. Mm. Yeah, I just found that fascinating, right? Because if that information could not have propagated to the masses in the way that it did because of the printing press, he would have just been killed. And the the document was not even created for the masses. It was created for the clergy, his opposition to it, right? And so I just thought that was just a social disruption of the printing press in that particular example, right? But then, yeah, again, you go on to talk about how much violence occurred over the extended period of time because of that. Okay, let's fast forward to how advertising <laughs> okay. created newspapers, because this is when we start to talk about news and journalism and the advent of that. Like how advertising created newspapers. Tell us what newspapers were before all of a sudden someone came up with the idea to say, oh, what if I put ads in these newspapers and sell them to people who previously could not afford news because this was like a sea change in the information environment as it relates to our cultural and political institutions. Totally. Yeah. So they were in 1833. 1833. That's right. Yeah. So news before, before advertising was 
not what we think of as news. It was political. It was like political broadsheets. If you wanted to actually read the news, you would pay the equivalent of like 20, 25 bucks, which was out of the range of normal people for what was basically a piece of political propaganda. Like it would have some news in it and there was mercantile presses too. But so there was like, there was shipping news and stuff like that, but it, it wasn't interesting. And it was very slanted. It was extremely political. If you were a Republican in a state, you would send out and and Frank, franking was basically the process of, of sending the postmaster, you would send out a free copy of your political party's newspaper to your audience. And so if your postmaster was of the same political party, they would make sure that it went to all of your constituents in that particular area. And they were very expensive papers. Uh, there was this like level of political patronage that was just so present. And people didn't really read the news. They didn't read the news the same way we think about it today. It was much more politically slanted. And so when advertising came along, there was this, this guy named Benjamin Day who basically decided to, rather than selling the paper, he decided to sell people's eyeballs along with the paper. He tried to sell people's people advertising. So he tried to find advertisers and he would sell the papers for a penny a piece. We would call the penny press. And he would put advertising all over the paper in order to get people interested in it and increase his numbers. He would cover the most salacious stuff like crime reporting. There's this famous New York prostitute that was killed by a hatchet that was like gruesome and 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 dark. And before that point, newspapers did not cover that in the same way. And he just like zoned in on the salacious, the grotesque, the gossipy, the kind of stuff we think about as tabloid journalism today. He focused on that just as succinctly as possible. And the result of that was there was a sudden market of people that were extremely fascinated by all this like kind of weird, grotesque stuff that historically just wasn't covered by, by newspapers. But in that process, he showed that there was a business model available to subsidize the news of the advertising. And that was that was really unique thing. And so, so those papers that, that actually started doing that, and there was an explosion of different newspapers that started doing that, there were no real journalistic safeguards. There was not any kind of boundary as to what you could or could not print. Libel laws were kind of notoriously loose. And so people would print fake news, they would print scandalous stuff on a regular basis. And there was a kind of explosion of small print shops selling advertising along with news for the first time. And that process of advertising coupled with news, that's become the greatest subsidizer of our collective organ of news consumption, of sense-making in history. And it did not exist before that point. So we've seen these polemics about advertising being the core problem uh, with the news industry and with social media. And I think there's definitely something there for sure. But I think that it's really important to recognize that advertising is a huge piece of the puzzle for how and why we are able to access yeah. information cheaply in the world. This was the turning point where average people had access to news. So where's the funding from and what's the motivation? The motivation is political power. The funding was there was basically propaganda, right? The motivation shifted to the market. There is something nonprofit oriented about this thing that is fundamental to society, which is consuming information so that democracy functions the way that it should. Right. 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 And so it's very interesting that you talked about the advent of ad based newspapers brought this salacious content, but that was necessary to get the reach to sell the ads. But there was also a market for real news. Right. 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 Yeah. And that there was a reputational risk of misinformation. So the market had kind of inherent correction mechanism towards truth. Right. Right. And then you talked about what was originally the New York Daily Times it was really the advent of modern journalism, as we know, it's serving this really critical function of society. So can you speak to that briefly? Yeah, it's really important to think about it in terms of this dilemma that your average consumer news consumer has, right? Every, every day or every week, you go out and you get a paper and you have this kind of body of different options, right? You look at all the different newspapers that are in front of you and you're like, this is a newspaper, this has something salacious on it. So you buy a paper that week. And it turns out that week, they did a story about animals escaping from the New York Zoo. There was actually a fake story of animals escaping the New York Zoo. So scary was it that people actually went out with weapons to try to find the animals that had escaped the zoo because they thought there were maybe marauding people in the streets. It was a fake story, but it was printed because it would sell store, it would sell papers, right? The next week, when those same news consumers come out and they hear that this is a fake story to sell papers, they're going to look at their body of papers there. They're going to be, uh, you know what? Actually, that paper 
I don't trust that anymore. I'm going to go with this other paper, right? Week over week, month over month, there's a reputational risk to the news producers if they actually stray too far from the truth, right? Every every week, every month, this machine is churning mm-hmm. along, trying to help inform people, hypothetically, primarily trying to help sell papers. But if people's sentiment shifted towards actually mm-hmm. like reliable news sources, week over week and month over month, and that process is core to the sense-making apparatus that is a market-driven enterprise, right? You don't want a government edict saying, this is what the news is, you have to trust us, nothing else. But you do need to have reputational risk for the parties involved. And that's actually, if we want to draw a line to social media here, I think that's one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now is that there's not much reputational risk to a lot of news producers online. A news site will spin up for a week or a month and just say salacious stuff. And there's not the correcting mechanism that's necessarily Mm. in place for people to verify that that thing was false. Mm. So there's this kind of consistent process of churning up misinformation or moral outrages in a way that isn't correcting over time. Mm. And that's part of the issue that we're facing. But yeah, so so this happened here in New York and there's one little place called Newspaper Row. There was this explosion. It was like explosion of startups <laughs> that happened on this one street in the city. And so it was New York. There was the Sun. There was the Inquirer. There was... There was like a whole bunch of these. And one of them was the New York Daily Times. And week over week, month over month, over the course of 70 years, the newspapers that were less reliable started to die out. And this was also the advent of yellow journalism. This came along around mm. the end of the 1800s. There was tremendous outrages and tremendous salaciousness that was reported on. But there was this process of professionalization that happened. And the New York Daily Times became the New York Times. People started to trust it Mm. above other newspapers. And there was this standardization of professionalization of the news that happened as a result, where people were like, oh, no, like this is how we do it, right? We need to have reliable sources because newspapers call each other out, right? That's another piece of it that's really Mm. important here is that you have multiple newspapers, multiple robust news agencies that are trying to actually the truth. There's a competitive market. So they're looking to try to call another party out and say like, that was yeah. actually false. This other paper over here, they lied about those animals in the park. They lied about these bat people on the moon, which is another real story that was actually created at that time. So, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> which is crazy. So there, there is this, this competitive process of trying to give us information that is really important. And a big portion mm-hmm. of that is reputational risk. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And then you also made a really interesting point where about how it was so expensive to print newspapers that there needed to be a certain amount of reach to justify that, which created an editorial incentive to appeal to a broader audience, which meant that you weren't overly partisan in your reporting. Right. There was this strange thing that happened when you got these steam power printing presses where things got, it got just very expensive to run this stuff. And so if you wanted to maintain the reach of your audience, if you wanted to maintain this very expensive infrastructure, you needed to actually appeal to the widest audience possible. And partisanship actually reduced the appeal of the paper to a lot of people. So there was this editorial process of stripping out partisanship to reach the widest geographic audience so as to sell more papers. And so the thing about the fundamental market incentive that was there is really interesting in contrast to today, where we actually have a market incentive for partisanship because of the ability to hyper-target on the internet. That is like one of the core differentiators between Mm. what was and what is now is that it is just so expensive to produce and distribute news before. And now it's much cheaper and much easier to, to push it out there. Yeah. But I I think there's also the important point that there is just this inherent tension in journalism between sense making and the role that it plays in information and feedback loops around democracy and also its need to propagate and compete and survive, which also trends it towards the more salacious type of reporting. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's fast forward to 1987. We've talked about this a lot, right? Yeah. Because when, again, yeah. when we look at what's happening with social media, it's it's really just putting a lot of gas on a fire that already existed, right? Yeah. So we're seeing the breakdown, but I want us to understand that the mechanics were there beforehand. That's why I'm taking us through the history. Yeah. Because we used to get our news on TV from a couple of sources. Yeah. And there was a shared understanding of reality, right? Right. And then something happened in 1987 that changed that substantially. Yeah. What was it? Tell us about it. So, yeah. So (laughs) kind of all hazily maybe remember what this was like to some degree, or at least we've heard stories about what this was like back in the day. You went to your, one of your three networks to get your news. 
And so is, I found it really fascinating just unpacking how this is the water we're swimming in, right? We, everyone alive today was born into an information environment that was traditionally mostly oriented towards a shared reality, towards shared facts. In the 70s and 80s, you would be exposed to really angering stuff. Society was exposed to really angering stuff. That Vietnam War was this tremendous outrage that was present. And everyone was actually on the same page because the news media had started to orient itself towards making that those outrages visible to people. But everyone was still on the same page. In 1987, the FCC repealed the Fairness Doctrine, which was a, a law that was put in place to help manage political perspectives on the news and make sure that there was basically fair and balanced reporting in the presentation of political issues. This is also just an advance of cable coming online. And so just, just after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, there was an explosion of very, very partisan news that happened. It started with Rush Limbaugh. He was one of the first impressively successful people to, to exploit this new media landscape. And he started the Rush Limbaugh show, which became this huge mega hit sensation orienting towards conservative audiences. And there was this new model of actually being able to profit off of a hyper-partisan political perspective that didn't exist before. Fox mm -hmm. News came along very soon after that, taking a lot of cues from Rush, knowing that this is a possible way of making a lot of money. And since then has, of course, become this enormous kind of cultural beast and I want to qualify, there is actually a newsroom at Fox that is actually doing decent news reporting and has traditional news reporting. It's the opinion component of it that is so substantially different. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're the beginning of this carve out of like, oh, no, we can actually sell opinion and sell extremely partisan opinion in a way that will make a lot of money. And we can do mm -hmm. that in a way that gets people very, very angry. And since then, there's been a lot of moves in that direction on the left and the center left as well. And it's like just opinion journalism has become much more common. I think people actually don't realize that there is this hard line between the editorial side of news, which is yeah. opinion, and sure. straight straight news. The reporters at Fox News that are in the newsroom, they don't interact with the opinion side in the way that we think they do, right? They're actually not covering those issues in the same way. There is actually a straight news, a fundamental straight sure. news department there that is responsible for sourcing accurate facts. And they were the ones that yeah. called the 2020 election. That part yeah. of the organization is, is yeah. actually like a traditional news organization. They're actually doing the same kind of work yeah. that CNN does or anyone else does. It's just they've gotten yeah. so much, so overshadowed by their, the opinion side yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think this is an important point to make before we get to the now on social media. Why is it the salacious story sell? Why is it that we tune into increasingly narrow news orientations, right? Because if we're trying to address what's happening systemically, we have to understand the human psychology of it. So I want to talk about that piece. So now, okay, so now we've got the arc of media. We've got a sense for some of the economic incentives. It's very important to look at how there was a very important regulation in place that when repealed, gave way to this very partisan orientation into how we consume news. Mm -hmm. So this speaks immediately to the need for some sort of market regulation to deliver the outcomes that we care about for society in an information ecology that is governed by economic incentives, right? So let's pin that. And now let's understand human psychology because we have to understand human psychology before we start to get into the solutions. And even like, I, I want us to understand human psychology before we get into like, okay, now let's look at this outrage machine. That's the big title of the book, because this is so absolutely essential. Yeah. How can you think about interventions if you don't understand human psychology and decision-making and why the outcomes are what they are? The reason why we tune into the channels that align with our political beliefs is because we have a bias to confirm our beliefs. 100%. We are far more likely to believe information that aligns with our beliefs and yeah. distrust information that doesn't. This is a Absolutely. this is a way that our brain works. This is yeah. why we tune into like this is important to understand, right? Because if you're yeah. trying to design a system that helps us be more objective, you have to understand there's that tendency. Right. We mm -hmm. have these narratives in our head and we have these traumas from our past and we see everything through that lens and we Absolutely. just amplify for whatever reason some pieces of it and we dismiss other pieces of it and so it's just a very complex psychology that's at play 
absolutely in these systemic outcomes yeah confirmation bias is is like yeah absolutely one of the most core like we don't like just confirming information right we have a set of very basic heuristics that we use to parse our relationship with the world and we don't like we will actually go out of our way to avoid disconfirming information, right? Yeah. And this yeah. is actually tremendously supercharged in the context of information that goes against the psychology and the the beliefs of our groups, right? Yeah. So we will actually, we will spend a, a huge amount of effort lying to ourselves and lying to others to confirm the beliefs of our in-group and our identity group. So I think this is illustrated best with this quote, social death is worse than actual death. Mm, so if yeah. our community believes something, being ostracized by that community yeah. is worse than being like literally killed, <laughs> which makes sense in the context of our history, right? We don't think about it that way when we say, oh, is someone going to kill you versus like you're going to hold on this belief? But that's absolutely where our fundamental impulses lie when it comes to processing disconfirming information. In the context of COVID, this is a huge, huge fundamental issue, which is that a lot of people would never get a vaccine if they were part of a community or never, never publicly yeah. get a vaccine if they were part of a community that was anti-vaccine, right? You just end up in these bubbles of confirming belief that shape our perception of the world dramatically. And yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting to, to think about that in the broader context of news as well, because right now we're now trading in these narratives that are insulated inside of ideological bubbles. And it's very yeah. difficult to find narratives that disconfirm that in our news sources also. So yeah. that's, a, that's a, big, a big piece of it. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about okay. <laughs> the three design features that changed everything. Okay. All right, cool. I was going to speak to how these particular design features also influence our psychology as well here, just the fundamentals of it. But yeah, so there's three three feature sets that were launched rather quietly at social media companies between 2009 and 2012. We, I think, both know a bunch of these people that worked on these features, all launched with good intentions, and they were extremely reasonable in terms of why they were deployed and why they were given to us. The first one is algorithmic feeds which is, we all know, the rank ordering of content in our feeds that is ordered for engagement, right? Trying to maximize our time on site, which makes sense. We want to not lose the important pieces of information when we log on to our social media feeds later in the day, right? It's the not reverse chronological mm-hmm. sorting of information that that we've been that we've become used to, right? We open up our feeds, well, and see the most important stuff just- on top. It just makes sense if you're a designer sitting in Facebook, the things that you engage on must be indicative of the things that you're more interested in. Totally, totally. Meaningful social interactions. You want the meaningfulness in in your feeds. That makes a lot of sense. There are some fundamental problems with that. (laughs) There are some issues that we have come to understand that we actually will engage with a lot of stuff, a lot of borderline content that is actually really problematic. We mm, yeah. respond to car crashes, right? When we're driving down the highway, we will rubberneck and we will look at a car crash. And if an algorithm is tracking what we're supposed yeah. to be looking at, it will serve us more car crashes. And that's a well. This is this this point is so fascinating. I want to punctuate it because I'm so glad that you referred to that Zuck 2018 post mm-hmm. about content moderation in the book because it's it was such an insightful post when I read it and it gave me a lot of appreciation for what Facebook does. But what it showed mm-hmm. was that. Facebook has a policy around what content is not allowed and engagement goes up exponentially as it gets closer to it, right? right? So there is something about our psychology that makes us want to engage in this, what they call borderline content. It's deeply wired into us that we want to, for some reason, engage with things that are bad for us beyond some threshold, right? right? Violence, pornography, et cetera. So this is like in our psyche. Yeah. Our attention naturally gravitates towards the extreme. And that's problematic. Certainly it was problematic. It was much more problematic before this phenomena was really identified. And I, yeah. you know, I do appreciate how Zuck was trying to address that problem in, in 2018 when they figured that out, which was they were going to start demoting content yeah. that was reaching towards the borderline. They basically um, inverted that graph to exactly. go 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 to zero instead of to infinity. Okay, so we have the algorithm. What were the other two design yeah. features? So the other one is, uh, one of the other ones is social metrics. We know them as the visible comments, likes, and shares that are the numbers that are beneath all of our content. It makes sense that they would have deployed this. A like is an easy thing to give away, right? It's a cheap thing to give. 
to your friends. And it's very meaningful when you receive a like from your friend, right? So it's like this interesting mm-hmm. little nice concept of a currency that goes between two parties. It's like, I am giving you a like, it's very inexpensive for me. And it feels really nice when you receive it. But there's something that was stumbled upon when likes were deployed that is a strange reaction to the process of essentially when we release content to our friends online, when we post something, we're actually in this strange little game all of a sudden where we're trying to figure, and we all are familiar with this now. It's like, we're trying to figure out if what we offered is going to get the number of likes, the number of comments, the number of shares, if it's going to go viral, if it's going to get this response from our community. And that is fundamentally, that is a, there's a fundamental process there called intermittent variable rewards, which was discovered by the psychologist BF Skinner. And he put, he puts animals into a a box, they would flash a light. And if they pressed a button, they would get a food pellet, but they wouldn't get a food pellet consistently. So if you actually add some randomness to the process of pressing the button and getting the food pellet, the animals go a little crazy and they start pressing it all the time, right? There's this process of, of randomness in the way that they were trying to figure out what it was, like what the logic was of actually getting the food pellet. And that's called a Skinner box. It's an operant conditioning chamber. And what it does is it trains the animals to obsess about the button, right? They obsess about what is the pattern behind trying to get the food. And Mm. that is exactly what we've developed inadvertently with social metrics is this, this system of training us to essentially press the button of posting to try to get the maximum number of likes on a regular basis. There's a whole industry that has that figured this out well before social media, which is the industry of gambling and slot machines, right? You put people into a room and you give them a button to press and they'll get a payout or they won't. And they will obsess over pressing that, that button over and over and over again. We'll spend thousands of dollars and thousands of hours just uh, trying to press a button in order to get that response. And that is a very core part of human nature. The reason why we have it is because for our ancestors, for foragers in the wild, trying to find a nice, tasty morsel, it makes sense to have some kind of reward mechanism that is that is not consistent, right? Because you're going to go into this bush, look for berries. You don't find any berries there. You look in this, this bush and find berries. You're going to look at and you don't find that. So, and then you finally find the berries. And this is great. It makes sense that we have this fundamental desire to essentially farm for for items, right? It's like you can see mm-hmm. it this is exploited in video games all the time with mm-hmm. intermittent variable rewards. That's yeah. a big piece of our psychology there as well. Mm-hmm. So that's the second one was that we've actually inadvertently trained ourselves into this Skinner box relationship with our friends in which we post online. We're not sure how many likes we're going to get. Okay, cool. I got to post again. I got to figure out what it is, is that I'm going to get the post the most likes on. Right? We're getting caught in these loops. And the third feature is the one-click share, the single-click mm-hmm. share which is a very simple feature. It was deployed across the board by 2012 on most people's phones. And that process of just making it incredibly easy to pass on information from one person to another essentially made our emotions viral, right? Mm. For the first time. In the moment Mm. that I'm outraged by something that I'm served, I can pass that on to anyone, anywhere. And that one simple process of just making it that much easier to take a feeling that I have and passing it on to my entire audience that propelled us into this level of virality of our content and our emotions that just did not exist previously in our species. We talked about how disruptive it was Mm -hmm. when the printing press went from a few dozen sheets to a thousand sheets per day. This is the same level kind of transition in terms of the the speed and spread of our information. Mm -hmm. And the result of that was this crazy period right? Which I think we all started feeling around 2012, 2013. We're like, whoa, this is a new kind of flavor of information. This is a new matrix of of stimulus that we're being exposed to that we haven't been exposed to before. And that started a cascading set of changes to our culture. These three features together started a cascading set of changes to our culture that have, I think, fundamentally shifted how we look at the world. Yeah. And so I appreciate too, just looking at it from a systems perspective, you can see how the, the combination of the like, the retweet and the algorithmic creates this reinforcing feedback loop, right? Where it's like increasingly outrageous content gets increasingly more engagement. And again, I mean, literally the graph is there in Zuck's post. It goes up exponentially. You can see the system has going to loop in that direction, right? One of the things that you talked about was the velocity that information propagates and the veracity of information. So we had this this incredible upthrottling of velocity where misinformation was actually far more likely to propagate because it was more outrageous. Right. Right. right? Which, and then again, coupled with 
confirmation bias and and like specifically refuting anything that doesn't confirm with our beliefs and increasing polarization. This information ecosystem where we can see all the dynamics and what we're talking about in the history leading up to this with these three features, it just got turbocharged to the point that it is breaking down fundamental epistemics mm-hmm. right. of yeah, society. It, it's weird to think about, but a viral post today will actually get more reach than a network broadcast post did in our parents' generation, right? If you think about that, right? Like the network news would spend days or weeks researching a story and then present it and push it out to their widest possible audience. A viral post, a single viral post of questionable information integrity can reach the same audience in less than a day. And that is a fundamental difference from the way that we used to process information to the way we process process it now. Yeah. Right, 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 right. You know, and now we talk about how obviously the ad-based model for social media platforms makes this as bad as it is, right? Because the incentive is to maximize engagement on site. But even if you strip that away, you're still competing for attention, for survival. You're still trying to get more people to pay attention to the thing that you're creating. You still have all of these cognitive biases that we talk about, right? We get the role that information plays. We get how media has evolved over history. Thank you very much, Tobias from Stockwell. And here we are, and we understand the breakdown, and we understand the breakdown in the mechanic of something that's more fundamental around systems throughout history. Where do we go from here? Yeah. So I think the general angle of looking at the system overall is really helpful for trying to think about solutions. I think drilling down to specifics is even more important than the macroscopic view, just because we got here with a very specific set of feature changes that have turned us into this (laughs) strange society of cacophonous outrage. And I think that if we look back at these individual systems, we can actually start to see solutions. And if you look at the internal documents at Facebook and a lot of the research out of Twitter and trust and safety, you can see the way that these problems can potentially be turned down if you are willing to take some of the hit, (laughs) right, in terms of your net profit margin. And so there is, yeah, we're going to (laughs) say. Well... And this is where we have to introduce just the system dynamic around multipolar traps. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's talk let's about Moloch. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Moloch. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about one of the specific features to so say like putting friction in place between you and your single click viral share. All right. You might be familiar with these ethnic cleansings that happened in Myanmar as a result of virally spreading WhatsApp posts about, about the Muslim minority there. Many people were killed. Many thousands of people were driven from their homes because of badly spreading rumors, false rumors that were spread about these minorities that ended up being this real tremendous atrocity that happened in Myanmar. What Facebook did was, as a result of that, they tried to reduce the spread of that information to a wider audience. So rather than being able to send a WhatsApp message to 250 of your groups that you're in, you can only send it to five. Rather than sharing with all of your friends, you can only share it with a smaller number of friends, right? So just like throttling down that misinformation is is helpful. So in the context of Moloch, which is this much bigger issue here, if you're thinking about a competitive market, right, where there's many potential social media platforms, and you can see this actually with Telegram right now, right? Telegram Mm -hmm. has become this hugely influential media platform, and they have almost no moderation. They have very, very, very little moderation. And as a result, so so you could see people migrating from a tool like WhatsApp to a tool like Telegram because there's less friction in Telegram. So as Facebook is deploying this throttling friction in, in place to try to reduce the spread of rumors, Telegram potentially comes in and they eat up part of that market share and they get people on there and then they can pass it on, right? So there's like a coordination problem amongst these larger scale entities amongst social media companies, right? So if I do the thing that's better for society, I'm just going to lose competitive position relative to someone else. Right, right. And that's the multipolar trap problem that we're facing right now collectively across the board. So it does require an entity to help the parties coordinate, right? It does require some level of enforcement at a higher level to keep these systems from being their worst selves, essentially, from the market dynamics driving us into these really problematic traps. And so I I do think that there is a role for government in that process. Like you you need to have governments in place. I, I don't think that content level regulation 
is the right move necessarily. I do think that potentially design level regulation is the right move, right? What is the optimal level of sharing? What is the optimal number of people that you should be able to share a post to instantly? <laughs> what are the design incentives? What are the design models that we should deploy to make sure that the right number of people are getting good information on a regular basis, right? And so it's not talking about what information is good. It's actually just talking about what is the right design of these tools to make sure we're maximizing good information to the widest number of people. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, where you have these multipolar traps, the system in itself with the actors will not yield the optimal social outcomes. So there's just a case for regulation around certain attributes. Right. right. I think that's, I mean, an obvious example is if you just look what's happening with AI right now, right. right? Everybody's releasing this technology. They don't understand it. They don't understand the implications of it, but everybody else is doing it. So they've got to do it too. And everyone's ringing the alarm bells. And the only way to really address that, there's not going to be a coordination among large public companies that will risk their competitive advantage in an enormous emergent market, right? The only way to address that is through some sort of regulation. But there's also just more competition. Like in some cases, more competition makes sense, right? If you have more options with different content moderation and you see this with the proliferation of Web3 and blockchain and other social media platforms and the ability to have a federation of social media platforms so that you can, there's not as much friction to leave them. Like there are things happening in a competitive ecosystem that enable better outcomes as well as things that are required on the regulatory side to yield better outcomes. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is really important to, to note this, that trust and safety teams do actually know what good information looks like. We know what the model is of high quality information. We can see it. Like a lot of like, Facebook actually knows, like Facebook, what's that meta? They they know what good information looks like inside the platform. They can tell. And so, so building incentives internally that actually prioritize good information over bad information is really important. And then having, yeah, having a federation of companies that also agree upon this, having strong trust and safety collaboration across these platforms is really important. And then I do think that a regulatory body should be worked on to try to help mitigate these things. And I am actually optimistic that we can potentially get there if there is the right political will. I think this is the truly the problem of our time, making sure we have have good access to good information on a regular basis. And it's not about, I, again, I just want to like double click on this, which is that it's not about content level censorship. It's about the design of these platforms to be more epistemically sound. It's not about demoting certain types of content or more tightly defining hate speech necessarily. It is actually about making sure that the optimal design of these platforms is what we're using so that we're more prone to seeing a real piece of information versus a rumor. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think is very thorny and complex about this problem, and this is, I've raised this repeatedly in many of our conversations, is when we talk about all of the biases that we have, there is a tension between the things that we will decide to do with our attention and what is good for society. A simple example is, it's better for me if I don't eat the ice cream, but if you put the ice cream in front of me, I'm going to eat it. Yeah. If I was a kid, I appreciate that my parents will not let me eat sugar all day long because they know that it's not good for me, right? right. Retros- so retrospectively, there, you feel that way, right? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's just a deep complexity here yeah. around designing a system that yields the behaviors for optimal social outcomes is inherently paternalistic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? How do we get around it with nudge when we're like, okay, well, we're still giving people choice. We're just designing things so that they choose the things that are best for society at the end of the day, right? Like, how do we design things that help us sense make and see opposing viewpoints when our confirmation bias leads us towards increasing polarization? Do we say, like, I understand that this is bad for society writ large, and I'm going to feed to the algorithms that be to give me the thing that's healthier for me, even though I really just want to eat the ice cream? Yeah. Like, I don't know how you, you know, I don't know how you reconcile that. That's just, that's, that's, that's really at the threshold of this issue. I haven't heard any really good answers because I think it's really thorny. Look, I think it's less thorny than we think. And I'll, I'll use this just example. Great. I from... love it when I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll use this example from, from the book when I, we, the, the Dark Valley of Radio, this one particular chapter, which just shows, I think, how far we've come in maybe 
thinking about this problem from the wrong perspective. So when radio came along, it was this amazing new technology, right? For the first time you had the voice of someone in your living room speaking to you and your family uh, in this deeply intimate way, right? It was this this powerful force of, of distributing information instantly to a huge audience, one that didn't exist before and much quicker than it did before. So if you were to turn on your radio in the 1930s, on any given Sunday, you were likely to hear the voice of a Catholic priest who would explain macroeconomics to you. He would rail against the KKK. He would try to give you some life advice. And then he would also tell you about a subversive plot to take over the government that was orchestrated by a secret cabal of Jews. He was, his name is Father Coughlin. He was a vicious anti-Semite and he reached millions of American households weekly. He was one of the most famous broadcasters in the country in the 1930s. It's shocking to think about how popular he was at the time. Like we tend to have a rose-colored lens when thinking back to like America's role in, in World War II, but but he was a, a tremendous voice of anti-Semitism. And he was supported by a basically a proto-NPR that he built, which was people would send in a couple bucks, they would literally mail him money to run his own radio station, which he developed himself. And he had this tower that he built himself, it was very expensive to operate, but he was so popular that he had people that would just send him in patronage style, a couple of bucks to keep listening to this guy's anti-Semitic rants. He would also verbatim translated a, a speech by the Nazi party to the United States in the 1930s. All right. He was actually exercising his freedom of speech rights in this very clear way in the lead up to World War II. And he was a Nazi apologist. He was extremely persuasive. And again, he reached millions of Americans. All right. The way that he was deplatformed during that time, and I think this is just important to think about, right? We, someone somewhere is going to make the determination as to what is acceptable speech and what is not acceptable speech. That decision is always made. There's not just a universal spread of information everywhere and anywhere without repercussions. Someone somewhere makes a decision as to how information is spread. Right now, that decision is based on social media companies' design decisions, right? In the 1930s, in the lead up to World War II, this guy was a legitimate threat to national security, all right? And he was doing something that was fully legal, 100% legal at the time, right? There was no problems with him just spewing straight up Nazi propaganda to a huge portion of American households. The way he was deplatformed was that the, the government nationalized the airwaves. They're like, actually, he is using the airwaves in this particular context. He's using this new thing called the airwaves, which didn't exist before that point, right? They're, they're, actually, this is a public good. This is a public mm -hmm. asset. The airwaves are a public asset. And we are going to nationalize these and we're going to give out licenses. And he, we are going to refuse to give him a license. All right. And this is one of the origination points of the FCC in that process, which is actually mm -hmm. forcibly deplatforming a Nazi sympathizer that if unchecked, if let run its course, could have fundamentally shifted American policy away from engaging in World War II, right? And the world would be fundamentally different if that hadn't happened, okay? So I just think that it's important to, to put a little spotlight on the history of how we share information. It's like we go through these periods of time in which mm -hmm. we have these questions about freedom of speech and freedom of speech does have outcomes and someone somewhere mm -hmm. needs to make the determination as to what, what is allowed and what is not allowed. Father Coughlin, he was eventually deplatformed. And as a result, I think we are better off collectively. We could have been in a much worse position. So, so when it comes down to, it, I think the, the attitude of we all deserve any information always doesn't matter if it's false. That is a very contemporary view that is not reflective of the struggles of history, right? Of the struggles mm. that we've already gone through to try to make sure that we have access to good information and not totally bogus propaganda. And that is a really important point to make here. We're swimming in the water of a libertarian ideal here that I totally mm. understand and I totally respect. But when it comes down to it, someone somewhere is going to make these determinations. And if it's propagandists, then like we're actually seeding some of our epistemic landscape to people that are that have really messed up agendas and that is going to affect us in a meaningful way you mentioned that you are going to publish a piece following the book that speaks a little bit more to on the solution side i know we've touched on it a little bit more but can you give us a little bit of a preview 
of what's yeah. to come. Yeah, the subtitle of the book is How Tech Amplifies Discontent, it Disrupts Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. And I, I do touch on the end pretty deeply, I think, on the on the broader themes that I think will help point us in the right directions around this. But there is a hunger also for more specific design interventions that I think can help us here. So I'm working on a, a piece right now that's that will be up on outragemachine.org. Uh, okay. Yeah. But what can you tell can you tell us what those are or do we have to wait until you publish it? Yeah, no, I mean I'm happy to speak to some of them. <laughs> I think what it comes down to is three different areas. There's there's things that governments can do, things that individuals can do, and then things that platforms can do. In the book, I speak to the some of the individual heuristics I think we can use to help parse better information. I think regret is a really important emotion for understanding our relationship with these tools. Regret is a it's called, I call mm. it a, system, a system two process. It's not necessarily a system one sort of reaction, right? In the context of fast thinking versus slow thinking, regret is this, this really important emotion. It's like a lot of time people will spend a huge amount of time on social media and they'll come off of it. And like, oh, this feeling that I have is like, oh, this, that was just like probably not a good use of my time, but like, okay. And we're habituated to it as they come back to it and they keep on this like loop of extreme attentional obsession and then regret when they come out of it. But I think it's really important to to focus on those moments of regret and try to calibrate your entire social media diet based on your news diet in general, because this is not just mm -hmm. social media. This is also news. News is a big part of this issue too. News and social media together are the outrage machine. It's not just social media. Yeah. <laughs> news is a, is a huge part of it as well. So yeah, calibrating your diet based on on regret and also looking to sources that aren't partisan that actually tend to be much mm -hmm. more focused on on straight news. And you can find these like the the AP and Reuters are actually two yeah. fantastic sources that don't they you won't find opinion journalism and analysis in the same way that you will on other platforms. You'll actually find straight news about what's actually happening in the world. So if you want information, then you don't want opinion, then that's a great place to go to. On the platform side, like we mentioned, I think that a whole bunch of categories of basically frictions that can be deployed across platforms to reduce the spread of bad information, to mitigate and deprioritize the stuff. And again, not on like this content specific level necessarily, but helping bad information travel slow, <laughs> if that makes sense. Helping information travel a little bit more slow. So it's like an important distinction is the distinction between velocity and virality. All right. So mm. virality is not inherently bad, right? A good book that we read, that we pass on to our friends and they pass on to their friends. That's actually great, right? That's actually, it's a bit what you call slow virality. And I think that's actually a good thing in general, like a word of mouth, a movie, this thing, this is a good thing. High velocity virality tends to be bad. It tends to be type of information that is, that is emotional, lacking context, oftentimes false, and very reactive. And I think that prioritizing slow virality over fast virality is a really key piece of that. And there's a whole bunch of different specific interventions that companies can deploy in order to, to I think, mm. improve the kind of slow virality uh, structure mm. there. Again, to go back to structure here, we know the structure of good information. We, we know what good information looks like. It is stuff that actually comes from sources. And I mean that like if you think mm. about the, the history of the internet, just to give a, a little bit of a zoom out here, there used to be this whole industry of people that would go around and they would spend their entire life trying to find a handful of good facts. And they were, their whole job was to go out and find a handful of good facts and they would put into a tome and they would sell that tome. It was called an encyclopedia. And you'd buy one encyclopedia set for your family and it would sit on the wall, be this huge line of books. When that industry met the internet, we got Wikipedia. And Wikipedia is so much better than a traditional encyclopedia, right? It is free. It is many thousands of times bigger than a traditional encyclopedia. And it is an incredible asset for people that use it. And we all use it, right? It's this huge asset for our species. We also used to go, if you had a question about something, a very specific research topic, you would go to the library and you talk to the librarian and you would get this Dewey Decimal System and you'd go and you find a book and you go to the, and you read the book and you find and it. It took a day to find a particular piece of information that you're looking for. And that, when that industry, when libraries went the internet, we got Google, right? And so you can think, kind of think about this like relay race of like traditional informational industries or informational uh, enterprises meeting the internet and becoming much better, right? Mm -hmm. When newspapers met the internet, we got 
BuzzFeed. We got clickbait. There actually wasn't a handoff in this. You can kind of think about it as like a relay race, right? Mm. And the old industry meets the internet and becomes a new industry. That handoff was actually supposed to be social media. The handoff from traditional mm. news to the modern internet was supposed to be social media. And that handoff happened without the specific design structures in place that professional news has, right? So the way newsroom works sourcing specific information, making sure that you have one to three verified sources before it reaches larger audience. Mm. It's this, that same transition should have happened mm. in social media. We can employ some of these same principles of professional journalism. And I just want to note, like both encyclopedias, Wikipedia has a really powerful sourcing uh, mechanism in place. Google is entirely based on sourcing and social proof. That's why we use yeah. it. We look to yeah. it because it has this powerful engine and page rank, which is based on a process of sourcing information. So we, again, we know what good information looks like. Even good mm. current information, good viral information, good news, we know what that looks like. It's just social media has not embedded those same principles from the mm. industry of journalism into its design. And I think that we can do that. Mm. Mm. And then finally, <laughs> this is... A lot, but finally, in the bucket of solutions on the government side, I think that reforming Section 2, 230 is is really important. I think that increasing the liability mm. that platforms hold mm. for the type of information that is spread is critical to actually solving this problem. And if you increase liability, I think that they will immediately snap to attention and start to, again, not police content on a case-by-case -case basis, but actually focus on the design structures that could actually improve the type of information that we're, we're given on a regular basis. I don't think that we should think about social media companies as being platforms in the same way as that we do today. I think they're much closer and much more akin to media. Mm. And we have regulations around media, right? Well, yeah. people are watching TikTok instead of TV now. That's how yeah. it works. It's much more a media yeah. company than it is a, than it is a yeah, platform yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, that's what's actually really interesting. So I read... And you can find it on the Denizen website for those who want to go down the rabbit hole. But I summarized it on the Denizen website for those that want to see. There is actually a report that was prepared for Congress on regulating social media. And it defines three different regulatory models to consider. One being the public square. The other being special industries, which includes broadcast media. And the, and the third being a publisher, which has full protection under the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what you're pointing to is seeing it not as a publisher with full protection, but as a special industry. Mm -hmm. more, more regulation would be justified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. And do you think that what we're facing here is, a, is a, just a dark valley of hidden harm? We just we did not know that we would find ourselves in this particular position when it came to social media. I do think that we can find our way out. I just think it's a process of coordinating correctly and climbing up. Yeah. Well, again, and it's also with the advent of Web3, right, and regulations that support increasing competition then you can get a proliferation and a portability between social networks. You don't have the network effects that lead to just a couple of platforms dominating where you have a lot of these pernicious outcomes. I think that's one positive trend coupled with the need for regulation. You're nodding your head like, eh, I'm not so sure. I'd I buy that. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting here. Okay. Tell me why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of, I think, examples of this, of portability actually not necessarily improving outcomes. There's a number of Web3 protocols that are in place that, again, without, I think, the right regulatory yeah. framework are becoming are sure. becoming essentially echo chambers of particular sure, sure. political sure. dispositions, right? So people are yeah. finding, and we, this is what we're in the age of bespoke social networks, right? Truth social, yep. right? Yeah. Um, so then it's like the social networks become your confirmation bias pocket in the same exactly. way that the, that, yeah, sure. Exactly. You so, saw that happen with Parler. Yeah, exactly. No, and I think it's happening across the board. I think Twitter in a way is actually starting to default yeah. to very Yeah, that's an interesting point. As well. so, that's, so a, it, that's a really interesting point. I wish it was as simple mm. as giving people a choice, but yeah, I, think yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's something yeah. more structural that needs to happen. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's both and, right? More competition in some ways will be able, but I think more competition in the face of confirmation bias is a really important point. I guess one last question that I'll ask, I know we've been going longer than we intended to, but again, you're covering such an important <laughs> fundamental topic to the inquiry in the Denizen conversation. How do you feel about the complexity associated with the pace of technological change relative to the ability for these corrections to happen? Right. Yeah. Great, great question. This is why I think looking at these disruptions as a cycle is really important, right? Zooming out and thinking about it as kind of this consistent 
it's like a fitness landscape, right? In biology, where in order to reach a higher peak, you need to descend for a period before you actually reach the higher peak, right? You need to go down before you can go up. And I think that you can think of these dark valleys of hidden harms with new technologies as this like descent into a fitness land, into a, into a lower valley before you get to a higher peak. And so recognizing that every new media technology is going to have this. And also like AI is a huge new media technology. I just want to be clear. Like yeah. AI is massive, right? Every new media technology is going to have this period of exploding unintended consequences, a period of decline in which people are confused. They're upset. They are misinformed. They are potentially outraged. <laughs> There's like a, a period of chaos that comes with every new media technology. And so I think it's important to think about this as like not trying to avoid those entirely because you can't mm. avoid them, right? There's going to be unintended outcomes for every new major adoption of a tool. But instead, anticipating the fact that they're going to come, they're in- inevitable. And instead, trying to reduce the depth of these valleys, right? And mm. reduce the length of them, like the, reduce the duration before we figure, figure out a way mm. out. And so I think that's a really key piece of this because we're the rate of technological change and introduction of new tools is only increasing. It's just exponentially going up. So we're going to be hitting these cycles of disruption faster and faster and faster. So just recognizing that like it's inevitable that we're going to have some harms associated with this, get ahead of them as as quickly as possible and try to reduce Mm -hmm. them, reduce the length of time before we figure out our way out. And I think you're starting to see that already with AI. I think the conversation around AI is much more advanced than it was around social media, right? A decade ago, Mm -hmm. where we're Mm -hmm. already starting to try, we're like, no, this is maybe a problem. Like this is, this is likely going to be a problem. Let's not just leave it to the market to figure it out. Let's try to think about this in advance. And let's try to approach this as best we can without it blowing things up first. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this very meaningful contribution to one of the most important essential topics of our day. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for your great questions. And thanks for Denison. <laughs> I mean, you're, it was really, the community has been super helpful and our conversations have been super helpful in, in contributing to this book and this whole project. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Scott Hansen, also known as Tycho, for our musical signature. In addition to this podcast, you can find resources for each episode on our website, www.becomingdenizen.com, including transcripts and background materials. For our most essential topics like universal basic income, decentralized social media, and long-term capitalism, we also have posts summarizing our research, which make it easy for listeners to very quickly get an overview of these particularly important and foundational topics. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter where we bring our weekly podcast to your inbox alongside other relevant Denizen information. Subscribers are invited to join our podcast recordings and engage with the Denizen community in our online home, The Den. We're partnered with some incredible organizations at the forefront of the change that we talk about. We share announcements from them in our newsletter as well. Finally, this podcast is made possible by support from the Denizen community and listeners like you. Denizen's content will always be free. Offering Denizen as a gift models a relational rather than a transactional economy, enabling Denizen to embody the change that we talk about on this podcast through the reciprocity of listeners like you that we are able to continue producing this content. You can support us or learn more about our gift model on our website. Again, that's www.becomingdenizen.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.